back to McCarty, touching in for Johnson inside the penalty area. A back post cross towards Godoy, back post shot, score! Hani Mukhtar! Who else? Of course it's Hani Mukhtar! He salutes the South Florida Sunsets! Save made by Marsman, and it's Mukhtar who picks up the loose change and puts it in the bank! A brace for Mukhtar! You are listening to the Club and Country Podcast. We are the podcast of record for Nashville SC coverage. And as you may have heard once or twice, we are two people who've covered the club longer than anyone in their respective disciplines. I'm Nashville SC radio analyst Wes Bowling. And I'm Tim Sullivan, the proprietor of clubcountryusa.com. Moon Taxi with the jams at the beginning and the end of the podcast episode, as always. And you heard John Freeman's highlight. One of many highlights in Nashville's win, 5-1 over Inter-Miami. Actually, a montage, a Mukhtar montage, not for the first time this year and perhaps not for the last in that 5-1 win over Inter-Miami. And then things were scoreless in Chicago. So, Tim, Champagne football in South Florida, Miller Lite football in Chicago. Not as compelling, but still got the job done for Nashville. Wow, wow. It's, I believe it's old style in the rundown, West. Come on, man. I, I had old style, and I thought in, a, in, a, in an audio medium, people might not get the, the you know I mean, it's a proper now who, who am i i'm guilty here there you go when in <laughs> rome right <laughs> gonna drink that miller light of the light beers by the way for me it's coors than miller i would rather <laughs> drink bleach than than bud light it's just not even on the radar for me uh whichever is first to sponsor the pod is my favorite <laughs> I reserve the right to retract my statement. <laughs> Nashville, I mean, not not the result that they probably wanted in Chicago, but sometimes over the course of a soccer season, you've got to sacrifice an optimal result by putting out a suboptimal lineup, and Nashville chose to make Chicago that match. So it wasn't the three points that many thought they were going to get, but they get a point from it, and they move on. Yeah, it's a situation where, you know, there's a feeling of missed opportunity when you don't take a win. Um, especially against a lower table team. But when you take the circumstances into account, fourth game of, of a compressed schedule road trip, less than ideal playing conditions, the Chicago game isn't something that the boys in gold will worry too much of about unless they come up a point or two short of a specific goal come the end of the regular season, whether that's not finishing in second place or that's finishing just outside of a Champions League spot in the end. Many of you asked about why Nashville didn't take care of business when person called Chicago a minnow. And we'll get into that a little bit later. I think there's some legitimate lineup points and questions to to throw out there. Uh, but the bottom line is four points in two matches. Nashville closed its longest road trip with seven points in four. Not a bad rate. And now, Tim, it turns its attention to two massive matches against top four contenders this week. Yeah, Orlando City is a team that has been highly variable with some sputtering along the way, but just incredible returns when that engine is performing at its well-oiled best. New York City has been fairly consistent as a top team in the league, of course, aside from a pasting at the hands of Nashville SC when these sides met less than a month ago. A pasting and uh, a near punching as well between Dax McCarty and Maxi Morales. <laughs> near punching, punching, who knows? Who I are mean, we to split those hairs? It's as, it's as close as Dax is going to get to punching, at least. Splitting hairs, but but not splitting foreheads, exactly, uh, between those two. <laughs> uh, in the early shout, we'll evaluate the road trip looking back, and kind of as a whole, in our gold nuggets. And then we'll preview those showdowns with Orlando Wednesday and New York City Sunday. But we've buried the lead for you, ladies and gentlemen, because our interview is awesome this week. Jamie Watson joins us. You may know him as Nashville SC's TV color commentator. 
He was also Dax McCarty's college teammate way back at UNC. You should look at their freshman pictures, by the way, as I did as I was digging into their bios a little bit today. Uh, Jamie offers all kinds of, of really cool perspective. And we talked a little bit of soccer, too. Uh, we talk a lot about broadcast work, about his transition into the booth from the field, which is a particular interest to, to me as a broadcaster and to Tim as a journalist. And uh, we talked about this league and, and, and how it has evolved. And uh, you'll really enjoy that conversation with Jamie. After that, in the mailbag, many of you, as we mentioned, expressed some frustration with Nashville failing to beat Chicago. Also questions about the striker depth chart with Yonder Cadiz getting the start above Ake Loba. And how will the East play out? Things are really tight right now. Currently, nine points separate third place and 11th place in the Eastern Conference table. And we're going to offer our predictions, plus more change in Cincinnati. Another coach gone. Wow. And we'll compare Nashville's expansion success to what's happened in Cincy, as well as Austin and Miami with a couple of fresh metrics that uh, we've not busted out yet on this show. All right. It's time for the early shout. Dave Romney with a long throw, headed away by the center backs from Slonina, who wanted that ball. Nashville takes it away inside the area. Works it back outside. Romney, cross, beautifully taken, headed on frame, saved, briefly spilled, out for a corner kick. Daniel Rios was in a fortuitous position. Romney looped in a gorgeous cross. And Rios did everything he was asked to do, but he just could not beat the 17-year-old. So the Chicago match, not quite as riveting as the Miami win. And um, I'll use this space to throw in out just a little bit of sour grapes. I've now called three Nashville SC matches on play-by-play, filling in for John Freeman. Usually I'm on the color mic. Nashville has scored zero combined goals in those three matches. We're talking New England last year on the road, scoreless. Red Bulls this year, 2-0 loss. So at least I got two goals to call. They just weren't Nashville goals. <laughs> and then this scoreless draw in Chicago. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit disappointed, Tim. Yeah, I mean, I, it seems at this point that there's no explanation other than the West Bowling curse has struck again. So I actually told Gary that today. I said, I'm going to let you know next time I'm on the mic if you can please accommodate me with something a little more exciting. <laughs> and he said, no, tell me when you're going to be on the mic so I can be warned that our curse is here. He's going to play 11 center backs in that game. Say we're not scoring either way. So we might as well just exactly. My goal was to tell him to play 10 attackers and a keeper, but I think he took it the other way. He said, John's back on the call Wednesday, right? I said, yeah, he said, good, great. So they're going to get back to scoring some goals. I think against Orlando, Uh, disappointed. I didn't get to call some goals, but I don't think that Nashville SC fans should be gutted by this result. Consider these factors. First of all, it was a rotated squad. Without Hani Mukhtar, who was on the bench, didn't play, and CJ Sapong, who didn't make the trip. CJ's healthy. He was carrying a couple of minor issues, and uh, Gary just wanted to rest him uh, as uh, certainly an experienced body in MLS for a couple of big games coming up. Uh, so a front three of Leal, who's in form, was joined by Mwil, who's a more defensive option, obviously, beneath the two strikers, and Yonder Cadiz, who's still not scored a goal since the second match of the year. So you weren't exactly expecting probably four goals when you saw that lineup. And a field that Gary Smith called incredibly difficult. Here's what the gaffer had to say about the playing surface at Soldier Field. Anyone that was fortunate enough or unfortunate enough to get close to the field would have understood that the surface was incredibly difficult after the American football that was played on it yesterday. <clears throat> Both sides had a lot of difficulty in trying to manage the ball. Hanny was in good enough condition, obviously, to be part of this. And had the field been in better shape, I might have risked him. But I just wasn't prepared 
to put him into that situation, knowing that the qualities he has were really not going to be seen on, on that field. Tim, you were at Soldier Field on Sunday. You know, you're up in the press box, but did the field seem as bad as Gary indicated in his postgame presser? Yeah, from the from the press box high on the Lake Michigan side of Soldier Field, it looked bad, but not that much worse probably than you often see in an NFL stadium, whether that's even Nissan Stadium at times. But uh, as a college football junkie who watched the Wisconsin-Notre Dame game con- uh, contest the previous day, I, I certainly get it. You could see divots in the field, and, and the most – aesthetically displeasing aspect was spray paint covering up the logos from the college football game both end zones and in the center of the field it looked terrible gary said it didn't affect the field very much it didn't affect the way it played um it didn't affect it didn't appear to affect the way that the game played either but adding it all together it's not necessarily a good look for the league or the fire and um, i think the way the game played out definitely was kind of downstream from the way that the field allowed the teams to play and I don't think that Gary probably wanted to put Mukhtar in at all. I think he was only going to do yeah. that if Nashville was down and desperate. But certainly, as, as he mentioned in that soundbite, a tipping point decision of, of, hey, the field's not looking good. He's he's taken a hard knock to the ankle that <laughs> I think yeah. my editorializing should have been carded in the Miami game. Especially, the result- especially if, if, the, if the supplementary discipline committee is going to rescind the second yellow, they should go back and say, okay, Gregory, you get you get you get all three then, buddy. <laughs> yeah, we've got a nice substitute substitution yeah. yellow for that. You can rescind, you can't add yellows, obviously. Yeah. And I think, I mean, they could consider rescinding uh, Hani's for descent after that. It was a bit of a shame that that Hani's the one that gets the yellow in that in that moment, and not the guy who stepped into his ankle. We digress. Well, anyway, so so yeah. about that feel. <laughs> <laughs> but but the result then of of those factors: a rotated lineup, less than ideal playing surface. A season-low five shots and a scoreless draw with a team that had been the worst in MLS over the last six matches. It is disappointing to some that, that have reached out to us not to take three points. Would you agree with that sentiment, or was this just simply a setup episode for bigger matches to come? And I guess it comes down to the, to the crux of the question, right? Should Nashville have a deep enough team to still get three points and still have that mentality when rotating and preparing for something bigger? Yeah, I mean, I guess given the state of the injury report, which included exactly zero players going into the match, (laughs) you would hope that there's a little bit more depth. But this is a time of year when that is going to happen, where you're going to want to rest a guy, even if he's technically healthy. And I I think a bigger thing to look at is we are on a a two-year streak of Gary Smith being extremely complimentary of the fire. He's every single opportunity said... This is a really talented team, even if the results don't stand up to it. Um, they, they regularly look outstanding on the expected goal margins. And the fact that Rafa Wicke's leadership hasn't exactly snapped the squad out of a, a multi-year finishing funk probably doesn't take away from the fact that these guys do create a ton of chances and don't allow many. And um, they didn't allow a ton of chances against Nashville SC on Sunday, but they also didn't create their usual number. And I think that's something that you have to look at and say, Nashville went in there and, and, and got the job done shorthanded, not quite the full job that they wanted to get done. One of the most attractive teams in midfield in Major League Soccer, mm-hmm. and the finish just has not not been there. Uh, but of course, things were much more riveting for Nashville against a rival in Miami on Wednesday. Talk about finishing. Nashville did that five times in that 5-1 win, and that was Nashville's most shots away from home this season. Its earliest road goal, Honey Mukhtar in the sixth minute, second earliest goal of the season overall. Eight players found the score sheet 
and by the way, CJ Sapong not among them. Kind of an <laughs> ironic twist. And CJ still played a pretty good game, but it was not uh, not the focal point. Everybody else was though. Uh, Hani Mukhtar earned a brace for the fourth time this year. Oscar Johnston scored his first career goal, also had his first assist of the season, and it was yet another illustration of the gap between Nashville and its expansion rival. Yeah, I mean that that gap is has always been pretty obvious. I think from match one, I think however many matches it took last year for Miami to get its first result, which I think was like seven or eight. So <laughs> this was a team. This was a team that has has never looked good. But I think this win from Nashville against Miami was probably even more meaningful in terms of the difference between these teams than last year's three nothing playoff win. That was pretty clearly a game in which one team showed up, got scored on, and said, "Screw it, our season's over. We're ready to go home." Whereas this year, Miami is still scrapping for a, a potential playoff spot and just had no answers for Nashville SC. That's something that that is a little bit more meaningful because both teams had kind of similar stakes. Even past that first goal, Miami had much more reason to say, okay, even if we get a draw, we're good here, which is, was obviously not the case in the playoffs last year. And Nashville avenges the 2-1 loss in Miami, still um, two of the only three goals that Miami has ever scored against the boys in gold in their now seven meetings as Nashville continues its mastery of its rivals in South Florida. Let's get to some gold nuggets and talk a little more holistically about Nashville's road trip. Seven points earned in four matches. If you're doing the math, that comes out to 1.75 points per match, which is actually slightly better than Nashville's points per match rate overall this season. Barely 1.73, but they're keeping pace with what they've done all year on that road trip. Now, Tim, last week, you said that Nashville needed to win both the Miami and Chicago matches to consider the road trip an unqualified success. But I think those numbers suggest seven points in four matches, good points per game rate, keeping your solid hold on second place. This trip was far from a failure. Yeah, yeah, it is a qualified success is what I'll say. Okay, It was definitely successful enough that it improves Nashville SC's season, but a team where Nashville SC wants to finish should probably still win both of those games against sides outside of the playoff field. Obviously, we've talked already about kind of the context that led to what resulted in only getting four points instead of all six. Um, but there are going to be what could have been vibes when you when you look back at this game, and especially as, as a follow-up to a game that was so dominant. Um, and when you get to the end of the season, if there's any, if there's a single point dropped that, that could have made a difference in a position in the table or something like that, that's the one that you're going to look at probably. I think that's perfectly fair, and we will hear that sentiment expressed by others later in the show in our mailbag. Uh, those seven points in that four-game stretch nearly equal the eight points that Nashville earned in double that number of matches away from home leading up to this road trip. So again, to recap that, because that was written in a bit of a convoluted way, Nashville played eight road matches before this road trip, and it earned eight points from those matches. In this four-game road trip, they earned seven. Is that improvement a sign of growth, Tim? Or are we looking at the fact that on this road trip, Nashville played teams that sat at the time in 7th, 10th, 12th, and 14th in the standings? Yeah, it is a lot of different things kind of coming together, and not, not least of which is a simple regression to the mean with a bigger sample size. You know, we, we've talked about this in the past where the hand-wringing over NSC's road form early in the year wasn't necessarily based on a statistically sound analysis for some of the reasons that we've talked about on the other side. Sometimes the better team doesn't win. Nashville has been the beneficiary of that, and earlier this year, they were kind of on the other end of it and, and not feeling so great about feeling like they should have taken some road points when they didn't. So over the course of the year, that randomness kind of levels off a little bit. And I think um, this road trip might be have been a slight overachievement. But when you look at the full road resume to this point, you're getting closer to an actual reflection of Nashville SC's value. 
And Nashville's going to need to continue to get the job done on the road. They have eight matches remaining, and five of them will be away from Nissan Stadium. But they do return home on Wednesday, 7.30 kickoff against Orlando City, a team that drew them in Nashville uh, earlier this month. Four straight losses, though, now for the Lions. Their worst stretch since 2018. That was a 22-loss season. This Orlando team is considerably better, and this has been a, a bit of an uncharacteristic slide for them. They've conceded multiple goals in each of their last five matches and have just two clean sheets since June. And as a result, now they're in their lowest position in the table since May. But if you ask Gary Smith about this Orlando team, as he was asked post-game against Chicago, those numbers, those recent numbers, they don't fool him. You know, we're competing against a side that are very much capable of being in top two, three, no two ways about it. They were beaten very narrowly, of course, yesterday in a tough encounter in New England, which I'm sure they've taken great confidence from, even though they've lost the, the, the fixture. They played well, Mr. Penoy. The team that we're going to play got a lot of fight, a lot of fight. And they certainly won't want us stretching away from them. And they'll come to our place knowing that in our last running together, there's very little to choose between the groups. So the next two games will be really, really tough. Probably as tough as they get. So, Tim, is Orlando at this point just a wounded dog whose bite could be fiercer as a result? Are they going to figure this out eventually? And could that be against Nashville? Yeah, it's definitely possible. I think what I'm most interested to see in terms of how it affects the final outcome here is, is something that we discussed in this space with the Orlando Sentinels' Julia Poe a few weeks ago, and that's will a full-strength Orlando squad actually travel? Uh, they haven't been bringing all of their stars on their road games over the course of this entire year. If they do bring um, you know, Pato, who hasn't played a lot lately, if they do bring Luis Nani, if they do bring all of their stars, there's both motive and opportunity for the Lions to come to Nashville and earn that crucial result. And I think Nashville expects Orlando to do that. I think they expect that, that this is the time when the Lions are going to really need to be turning things into top gear and playing their guys as much as they can. But obviously, when when several of your stars are older players, you've, you've got to, to manage that, as you've seen Nashville do just a little bit too. Um, after Wednesday is NYC, a brunch match, 11 a.m. Sunday. It'll be the earliest match Nashville's ever played in MLS action. I like it, by the way. I like these Sunday brunch games. That's that a nice. bummer of missing out on, on MLS's back. We could have had some like 8.30 a.m. games last <laughs> year. true. Man, that was uh, that was such a blessing during the during the pandemic. Wife was pregnant, and we were you know not sleeping the best anyway. But those 8.30 games, those morning ones were easier for us to catch than the, the 9.30 or 10, 10 p.m. Uh, always were. <laughs> um, so 11 a.m., it's going to be played at Red Bull Arena and not Yankee Stadium which could really have an impact on the cadence of the match. It's an NYC team that is built tactically in a lot of ways to take advantage of the small, almost illegally small pitch at Yankee Stadium. Um, at Red Bull Arena, though, instead, Nashville blasted NYC at Nissan Stadium 3-1 on September 3rd. Dax McCarty showed off a couple wrestling moves with Maxi Morales, as we referenced. Uh, since then, for NYC, just one win in their last five, and they dropped points in two matches against their rival, a rare back-to-back -back Hudson River Derby. They earned just one point in those two matches, picked up a, a couple of red cards, had, had really a, a sloppy showing, and they'll be looking to get back on track against Nashville. Yeah, I mean, I've already said in this very episode that, that I think NYC has been one of the most consistently excellent teams in MLS and probably the most consistently excellent team in MLS. And I'll stand by that despite a rough couple of weeks. Again, you know, we're such believers, at least I am, I won't speak for you. We're such believers in what the advanced stats say in terms of 
what the results maybe should have been. And, and maybe NYC can underachieve those at times. Um, but at the same time, the, the advanced stats often mean that you are the team that they say rather than necessarily what it says on the table. So um, this is a team that's played well, but perhaps not done well enough to outpace NSC. And in in, um, maybe that will be an exception. And you can always say, if this is a team that's good enough to have those elite XG numbers, they're good enough on a single day to come out and, and really have a strong performance with their finishing and their shot stopping. If you can share six months of podcasts with me and, and not believe by this point that I also believe in those underlying metrics, then I have communicated mm-hmm. something very, very wrong. I'm not quite <laughs> as nerdy about it as you, but uh, yes, very committed to those. Uh, later in the show, we'll get into where we think NYC will finish and Orlando and everybody else in the East. It's going to be a fun exercise that's going to be completely futile and completely inaccurate, but uh, but enjoyable nonetheless. That's what podcasts are about, right? Futile, <laughs> inaccurate, but, uh, but entertaining at the same time. And speaking of entertaining, Jamie Watson has entertained Nashville SC supporters with his voice as the color commentator for Nashville SC's TV broadcast for two years now. He's a former player in Major League Soccer as well as USL, has such interesting thoughts about this Nashville team, about this sport, about those with whom he has crossed paths over the years. You will hear names referenced in our conversation. You will not expect to hear, as well as some really cool ideas and perspectives. Pop, pop star JoJo somehow did not make an appearance. Somehow, and that's about the only name we did not get into. <laughs> uh, let's go ahead now and uh, send you to our interview with Jamie Watson. Jamie Watson is the color commentator on Nashville SC's television broadcast team. It's his second year in the role after moving down from Minnesota, where he spent three years on United Broadcasts. His professional career included MLS stops in Salt Lake and Dallas, as well as 37 goals in USL and NASL. In fact, according to our records, he's the only person to score in each of the top four flights of American soccer. And that first professional goal as a 19-year-old came against LA Galaxy. They had Landon Donovan and Herc Gomez on the pitch. Jamie, you've been everywhere. You've done everything. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, a lot of miles on the car in my career, just relocating from city to city, league <laughs> to league, apparently. But uh, it's led me to here, so I would I would quantify that as a success. So a great pro career. And, you know, a lot of times people who, who are particularly intelligent and driven, they can go one of two places, right? They can go into the coaching world. They can go into the broadcast world. What was it that made you decide to go into broadcasting? And was there a moment in your career where that kind of clicked, or is that something you've kind of always wanted to do? Well, Weston, Tim, you guys know me. Uh, you know I don't shut up. So I think you <laughs> and I both know which direction it was going to head. I, uh, I tried my hand at coaching later on in my career. I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Um, but for me, I always loved this side of it. And I would I would do interviews with people like yourselves when I was a player. And then as soon as the interview was done, I would be like, hey, so why did you ask this question in this order? And I was always intrigued by it. And I always liked the storytelling aspect because I think – Every person has a story to tell, and as a former player, I think it's pretty cool sometimes to know the insight of what a player may be thinking and then sort of bring that to the broadcast or bring that to the discussion, maybe that perspective. And so it just naturally led me you know, down that path, and I had a lot of people help me out along the way. So it's um, I'm very fortunate to get to do what I do. I'm not as smart and as intelligent as people like yourselves, but you know, having the experience, I think certainly is an X factor that helps um, in this new profession. Was there anybody whose counsel in particular you, you saw it? Is there a specific mentor you'd like to name who you look up to maybe still watch as kind of an example of how you like to do your job? 
Yeah, there's, I mean, there's several people. So, you know, if, if I forget a name and you're somebody watching this and you're going, hey, thanks for not mentioning <laughs> me, um, I'm sorry. Um, well, friend of the pod, um, Brian Dunseth, was somebody that was a really um, early mentor for me, both as a player, but then as I made the jump over, because I, he kind of blazed this trail that nobody else had blazed before, in my opinion, in my eyes, the way he did it from playing in Salt Lake and then coming back and he worked his way up from the radio side, um, then got his opportunity with the television side and he did it in a way that was very personal and very and connected. Um, and so he was, he was obviously somebody that was really important for me. Um, Brad Baker gave me my first start in this industry. So I was very excited about uh, that opportunity. I was very appreciative of that. Um, and then along the way, uh, Shaw Brown has been amazing for me. He gives the most honest and critical feedback. He tells you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. Mm -hmm. And that's great. So I am incredibly grateful for several people along the way. Um, and I've had some incredible people that have helped me. Um, one friend uh, in particular, Andrea Yock, she is uh, doing this really cool venture. She is starting a women's uh, USLW team in Minnesota now. Um, she helped me a lot with marketing and understanding um, in Minnesota how to bridge the gap between player and commentator. So, I mean, look, there's so many people to name, um, but I'm um, really grateful for a lot of people that have helped me out to get to where I want to be. You mentioned Shaw, so I have to be annoying and say that's Michigan Wolverine, Shaw Brown. But yeah, <laughs> you may continue. Go blue. <laughs> no, Shaw's great, and he talks about it every time. We know how the broadcast is going to go. If Michigan does well and a Michigan football wins – and also if Ipswich Town, if they win on the <laughs> oh weekend, my gosh. I know it's going to be a good weekend. But to be honest, and see, this is this is already where I'm already realizing that I have missed out on naming some people. It's people like yourselves as well that do this pod. Um, ben Wright does a great job. Drake Hills, uh, Wes, your brother. Uh, Will, he does a great job. All of us that are in this industry, I think that we can all um, take from each other and learn, right? So some things that you guys do, uh, Tim, you do a really good job of creating stories and storylines and following it and being critical when you need to. Um, Wes, I've told you this a million times off the pod, but uh, I look at you and I say how you incorporate statistics to help tell the story. And while I like to say that 64% of statistics are made up on the spot, <laughs> your statistics are actually legitimate and they're real and they help really um, tell a compelling compounding story. But I think everybody in this industry can take something from others, whether that's something they want to emulate or it's something they want to make sure they never do. There's always something to learn from other people in this uh, in this industry and in this business and in this side of the sport. And I'm constantly trying to be a sponge and take on board what works and filter out what doesn't. So to toss the praise back to you, you know, we're in, in meetings once a week, sometimes twice a week, preparing for these broadcasts, having conversations with with the club. And, you know, it's one thing to have an understanding of the game as a former player, which you clearly do. It's another to clearly communicate that in a way that, that you know, you can knock it out in 15 seconds between Tony Husband tidbits and, and calls. It's really hard to be concise, effective, and paint a picture the way you do. And so I'm wondering, because you've, you've done it so well in a relatively short time doing so, what have been your keys to success? You mentioned those who have mentored you. You mentioned kind of gleaning, you know, things from other people. But beyond that, how have you found your voice? Uh, it, there are a lot of former players who do this. Very few are as articulate and concise and effective as you are in the booth. Well, thanks, Wes. I think a lot of people would push back on you on the concise thing because <laughs> these, these lungs, 
they translated from uh, from running and being uh, able to last 90 minutes on a field to uh, lasting 90 minutes in a booth. Um, the concise thing is always something for me. That's the one always little thing I need to always work on and be sharp at. Um, I don't know. It, I've had a lot of good people that's that's helped me. And um, Shaw does a great job. Now, if I start to get a long wind in my story, <laughs> he'll get in my ear and he'll go wrap it up, <laughs> tighten it up, shorten it up. You know, he'll give you a little bit of a cue like any great producer. And I've had some great ones too. Morgan Lubin was my producer in Minnesota for the most part. Russ Lathrop as well works with us now. Those guys do a great job of that. Um, I think the biggest thing is sometimes I understand, I guess, what players might be thinking in certain situations. And then as you start to find your voice, right? Like Wes, you know this, you you find out who you are as a broadcaster and you decide, you know, that's kind of how I want to present myself. I want to be somebody that can be related to by somebody who's turning on the TV for the first time mm -hmm. or somebody that's got decades of experience, right? And it's not easy because you want to carry the credibility with the 1% of the top 1%, but you also want to make sure that the larger audience may be tuning in and you don't want to speak over their head. And I don't want to be somebody that just says, well, that's not good enough. What, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? It's not good enough by whose standards, by my standards, by somebody who's watching for the first time for Landon Donovan's standards. You know what I mean? Like, so let's, let's not just be lazy with that. Let's say something along the lines of if, you know, Dax McCarty wants to make a pass, right. And he underhits it, the defender picks it off and they go the other way and get a chance. Right. Well, I'm going to say what Dax McCarty was trying to do was he was trying to switch the play, but the ball was stuck between his feet. He tries to play it long. He can't get the height on it. It gets picked off and the chance goes the other way. And now you're watching and you're learning going, oh, okay, well, that's what was not good enough. He needed to get out of his feet to be able to get some loft on it, to clear the defender, to start the counterattack, but instead it goes the other way, right? And so uh, everyone can see that that probably wasn't what he meant to do, but just maybe explain mm -hmm. what it is that he was trying to do. And, you know, it, You'll find out quickly via your mentions on Twitter. You're not everybody's <laughs> cup of tea all the time. Uh, you just try to, you know, hopefully find a sweet spot that you can, um, you know, be be pleased with what you did. And the last thing I think that I always make sure before it leaves my mouth, I make sure that I could look at every player and I can re-say what I said on a broadcast to their face. I think that challenges you, challenges you to actually say something um, – insightful because if i say to dax well that was that was bad gonna be like, yeah i know it was bad like <laughs> you're joking yeah. right like be better than that but if i say a player of his caliber expects himself to be able to hit that pass and he doesn't hit it and he comes to me on you know monday morning at training he goes why'd you say that about me the broadcast well i would say hold on okay i said by a player of your standards you'd expect yourself to be able to make that pass is that true and then you'd have to have a moment of reflection and go, okay, yeah, probably. So mm -hmm. it's it just challenges you to be a little bit better, a little bit sharper. And uh, I just totally proved that I can't be concise with that minute answer. <laughs> hey, this well, is a podcast. This is the medium for, for people like us who aren't as concise. Sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry, Jimmy. We, we've established ourselves somehow as the context and sample size podcast. So welcome to the resistance. You have officially joined. <laughs> with a, with Thank that. you. Thank you. Clear your schedules for the afternoon. <laughs> You mentioned the importance of relationships. You talk about, you know, guys like Dax and, and you know, having the ability to have those conversations in the locker room. Um, your broadcast career got started 
in, in, as part of a connection to Adrian Heath, who you played with uh, for more than 100 matches. I would imagine that, that in that case, that familiarity was a huge asset. Your ability to stand next to him in a quick interview and kind of know where his head was probably at, how to approach him, uh, and to have those conversations off air that we have to have to get the job done effectively as off the record chats. How challenging is, was it then when you moved to Nashville, you moved to a new market and you've got to build new relationships with Gary Smith, with, with Mike Jacobs, with the front office. What did you take from Minnesota and, and apply to those new relationships so that you could get in the, the proverbial circle of trust here? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. Cause I think that that is so important to being effective is, is relationships and just, earning trust. You don't get it all the time. I built that with Adrian over years and years of playing with him. And I still stand by it. Adrian was the best coach that I ever played for um, as a professional. And I look at what he taught me later on in my career when I when I joined on playing with him, probably in year six or seven of my career. I, if I would have had him in my first couple of years, I think I would have been 10 times the player that I was. And I was proud of what I accomplished, but I think I could have accomplished much more. He was a phenomenal coach. Um, and so as we switched over to the broadcast side of things, um, you know, I, I knew genuinely what he liked as a, as a manager. Um, I knew that when uh, performances were going well, he would be very excited to talk about it. So if he was coming back from halftime and his team was up 3-0, he'd want to come out and chat and be like, hey, how good was the first half? And how good was this? And I'd be like, uh-uh, uh-uh, don't talk to me. Wait till the camera goes on, right? Yep. And then I would be like, let's go. Give me all of that excitement right away because I didn't want him to – you know, when you're telling a story and it's great, the first time it's really good and the second time might lose a little bit of steam and then the third time you're like, oh, yeah, I've told the story a lot, you know, right? So, and then I, on the flip side, if his team was down 3-0, I knew we could get explosive on air, so I would be like, why don't you blow all that steam off real quick <laughs> for good 60 TV. seconds? And then I'd be like, all right, let's, uh, let's, let's tell the story again now so you don't get uh, fined by the league or something mm. like that, you know? And, um, and so now coming to Nashville, I was I was pretty fortunate since I I got a chance to do one game with Nashville sort of as a trial uh, with John Freeman and Kelly Glendening um, when they played against the Birmingham Legion and of course in typical Nashville USL fashion they left it for late Justin Davis uh, sends a ball in from a corner I think they had just done it the week before and uh, Jimmy Oxford scores a header and you know goes crazy runs in front of the the roadies and um, they did an amazing job of, of I love the truck behind the goal. That oh yeah. Awesome. Uh, that I got to experience that. So it was funny because with Gary, uh, I talked to him sort of on our kind of weekly media call before that match. And, you know, he knew everybody in the call, but Gary was like, hang on a minute. Who, who's this Jamie guy on the call? <laughs> and I was like, uh, unmute real quick. I'm like, hi Gary. My name is Jamie. Um, this is like my only job. So I promise I'm not going to share anything that you say. This will all, all be professionally handled um, <laughs> because I know if I don't, I'll never work in this business again. Quickly mute back. And he's like, all right, you're pretty good. So he was really, trusting. <laughs> he, he, I think, I think I said the right things in that two sentences that I spoke to him um, and he was great. He was really kind. And so then when we joined on here in Nashville, um, I mean, what, a, what an opportunity it's been to, to be here with this club and get to uh, to join in with what you guys have seen all along and help get to tell the story and um, just try to do it justice because this club has done something special from day one. And then as they made the jump to MLS, um, helping to get to tell that story too has been um, equally as important because I'm a player that was a part of the USL team that went to Major League Soccer. So I understand the sort of two histories of the club and, and how they are 
intertwined and that sort of crossover while year after year it sort of becomes lesser and lesser from a player standpoint although Nashville does have still several players Matt LaGrasse, Dana Rios uh, come to mind, Taylor Washington that will that will fade over time, the player crossover, but the fan crossover won't and so I like to try to obviously keep that alive as much as possible because I think that's an integral part of the history of the club and you don't know where you're going if you don't know where you've come from and so um, I try to appreciate the past and in anticipation of what's to come. So I'm excited to, uh, to see what's, what's ahead for this club and um, getting to work with Mike Jacobs too. He's been amazing. I've known him throughout my career. He we've sat down and he's told me, I scouted you in your college days <laughs> and then you went to UNC and you broke my heart. And I was like, well, it's because I wasn't smart <laughs> enough to get to do Mike. What'd you expect? <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's been great to just sort of rekindle. Um, some relationships. Soccer is a small world, as you guys know, and so they get to kind of come full circle years later. Um, it's I love going to work every day. Yeah, as somebody who who did um, make that transition in in your career from the USL team to an MLS team, that sort of idea. How does that kind of help contextualize how you personally look at kind of the Nashville USL history, especially since you have um, holdovers, whether that's the technical staff with Mike and Gary, especially, or the players, as you mentioned, Taylor, Matt. Um, Daniel and a couple others. I think the biggest thing about players, staff, front office and fans that were part of the club when it's from USL to MLS is a lot of times people will jump on board, right? Because the marketing sort of seems to reach further. Mm -hmm. The word spreads further. You're on a bigger platform in Major League Soccer. And obviously the stadium's bigger. We got the new stadium around the corner. Everything about it is it's sexier, right? But there was a lot of people that were diehard, loyal to the team, put a lot of energy and effort to help get to this point when it wasn't as pretty or it wasn't as easily accessible. You had to go search out and you had to find it, right? And you had to um, really be a part of something that was grassroots that I don't know if anybody that first year of USL ever expected that we were going to be just around the corner from the biggest soccer-specific stadium Mm -hmm. in the country. You know what I mean? So it's... It's one of these things that I appreciate that just as much as I think as everybody else does, that's been a part of it. Even though I haven't been here from day one with Nashville, I can appreciate that because I've seen it with um, Orlando, with Minnesota. So I've been there. I fought that good fight to get to this point. And um, I was even a player that was making the bus journeys where you're on a sleeper bus overnight, hoping to one day be on the MLS team playing. And so um, I've seen it from a few different perspectives. And I think it's something that, is beautiful. Um, it's not something that every team and fan gets to experience. So I think it's unique and special and something to be um, appreciative of, but it also makes you appreciate where you are now, right? Like people that ask me about the new stadium, I always say, make sure you go catch one of the games at Nissan before the team is done playing at Nissan because it's really fun there, but it will make you appreciate the new soccer specific mm-hmm. stadium a hundred times more Hmm. because you'll see everything that is about your experience from the moment you park to you walk in the stadium and everything around you, everything that you see visually, you experience, you hear, feel, see is created and curated and catered to wanting to enhance your experience. You don't necessarily have that at Nissan. So it'll make you appreciate it even more at the state, at the new stadium. When you do go to the new stadium and you see it, you see how fun it can be now at Nissan. It'll be 10 times that at the new stadium. So I'm like, just go now so you can see the before and after, just like everybody at um, First Tennessee Park, right? You know, it's mm-hmm. yeah. just the next evolution, next step. 
you mentioned that soccer is such a small world. I would say you could connect pretty much everyone in global professional soccer by about three degrees of separation. If you play with Dax McCarty, that goes down to two degrees, <laughs> which which you have. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I was fascinated, for instance, to hear you talk about your experiences playing with a young Freddie Adu back at, at what is now known as IMG Academy and Grant Wall's long-form podcast, American Prodigy. I uh, would recommend that folks give that a listen. Uh, it was, it's pretty awesome to hear you recount, among others, your, your stories of playing with Freddie as a, as a young kid. Uh, when you sit down with buddies over a beer and they ask you to tell a funny story about a noteworthy player with whom you've crossed paths, and maybe a, a noteworthy uh, you know, story that, that's... Uh, Appropriate for air, at least. Uh, what's what's your what's your go to, or what's a story that you that you lead with as you know? It's been a crazy career. For instance, blank. Oh man, this is. <laughs> I don't know if the statute of limitations is up on all of these stories. Whether players are still playing, or we get them in trouble elsewhere. Um, no, I, I think that's the. Uh, for, to your point about uh, Freddie and with Grant Wall, I think that was an incredible uh, podcast mm-hmm. that Grant put out. I was even surprised. I think at how much of a a sort of role I had in that podcast because I think um, I didn't even realize sort of the unique I kind of had the beginning the middle and the end connection with Freddie of the beginning of the rise with the national team that's actually the jersey from the Youth World Cup um, that Freddie and I uh, played in Mm -hmm. together Freddie's actually uh, I'm right there and then Freddie's (laughs) right there I don't know you can't yeah no you definitely can't see it but that was the jersey from it from our World Cup in, um, in Finland that was my Uncle Rico story right there. <laughs> Tell the story from awesome. 20 some odd years ago. Um, Grant did an amazing job with that. It was a great listen, as you mentioned. Um, all right, so down to the, the, the nitty gritty, right? The stories. Um, there's so many along the way. Obviously, Brian Dunsett told some funny stories uh, on here that yep. uh, were probably probably very high on the list. Um, <laughs> Dax is in some of those stories. Uh, uh-huh. Before he uh, he turned professionally, came to stay the summer and train with Salt Lake while he was still at uh, UNC. He was in a few of those stories. Statue limitations aren't up on him just yet. Um, <laughs> I, I'm trying to think um, timing-wise, concise-wise, right? i got to think of that. Um one of the funny stories, um, I think, one of the best bonding experiences, I think, was playing in USL when you had to take these sleeper buses to some of the games because you were on such a budget. Um, I remember we would not necessarily get, um, we were, we'd be enticed was the right word, a little carrot dangling at the end of the stick. If you win, uh, Adrian was like, I will, I will buy beers for you guys on the sleeper bus on the way back. Right. And we were all making next to nothing. Right. So like the thought of like, you're going to buy our beers tonight. Here we go. This is great. It's all the motivation we need. Right. And so we would, let's say we would take these bus rides from Orlando to Charleston. You'd leave at like 10 o'clock at night. You'd sleep through the night on these sleeper buses. Old man, Charlie was driving. And all of a sudden at three in the morning, you're sitting there laying in your, you know, your bunk bed, looking at the, uh, the ceiling and he would start to swerve and you hear the cat's eyes and you're like, and you're like, Oh boy, we going off the hill here. And then you get back on the road. You're like, Oh cool. We didn't die this time. So you go play the game. You'd win. Um, one time we were in Charleston, we, we pulled over to get some beers in and we all managed to just like wander from the, uh, the gas station to like the local pub. And we ended up, um, somehow getting in a team dance off, um, at this at this little no-name bar in Charleston. Um, <laughs> we were coming up with different dances, whether it's the lawnmower, uh, whether, you know, the shopping cart, whatever. And then um, <laughs> I think I came up with this great idea um, after a, a celebratory drink or two that <laughs> I told, um, 
10 of my teammates, you guys line up here like bowling pins, right? And we clear the dance floor. <laughs> and I got at the other end of the bar and everyone cleared out. And I was like, wait, this is a great idea a moment ago before I realized just how gross the dance floor was. Yeah, yeah. But I've got 10 teammates lined up in bowling pins going, come on. <laughs> so just start doing somersaults, rolling on the bar floor. Two, they get to the teammates. They all fall down. Everybody goes crazy in the bar. I was sort of the mic drop. We walk out, you know, we're getting back on the bus and uh, Adrian was there. He's, you know, everybody's in a great mood. And then you get around this sleeper bus and there's a little lounge area here. So after we've just clearly won the dance off, uh, I'm covered in, uh, you know, everything that goes on a dance floor in, in a bar. <laughs> and uh, it now becomes sing song time, right? So imagine just being like Adrian going, all right, right, right. West, you're up. Give us a song. And you got to start singing, right? And and then it's like, all right, Tim, you're up now. You got to sing a song. And if it's a bad song, it's, you know, boo, boo, Tim, <laughs> boo. And it's like, I wouldn't choose a bad song, up. but it would be bad singing. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. well, here we go. I'll put you on the spot. You got to sing a song right now in front of everybody. I won't make you sing. What's your go-to song that you know the words? That's a crowd favorite. Tim, you're up. What do you got? What do you, what would you sing? Probably Africa by Toto. Oh, great. With the falsetto. Yeah. That's a great oh, yeah, choice. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. See, all right, that's got some crowd participation right when you get to the chorus. Mm -hmm. that, that would and everybody can do the air drums. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Wes, if you got to sing a song, what are you singing? Well, as a University of Tennessee grad, I'm going to say Rocky Top. But as a populist, I'd say maybe something with Bon Jovi, maybe, uh, maybe Living on a Prayer. See, there you go. You get it, right? You may want to go Rocky Top, but you got to know the audience, right? And so um, if you didn't play a song that everyone knew or could sing along to, you're getting booed off the stage, right? You don't want that, right? So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, that would be, that was probably some of the best memories was we made the most of these trips. We were making next to nothing, just winning games on a road trip, 10-hour bus trips, and uh, just doing it all for a case of beer, case of natty light. We were so easy to please. <laughs> we were professional athletes. I mean, everybody said it's all glamorous. It wasn't like that when I was playing at, at all. <laughs> Uh, so we don't know whether Gary Smith is offering his players booze, nor would we say if we did. Um, but you were in the MLS, in MLS for 05, from 05 to 08. How has MLS changed since your playing days? And do we underestimate the adaptability required of a guy like Gary Smith, who has two tenures, nine years apart, in virtually fundamentally different leagues, and, and who continues to succeed here in year two with his Nashville team? It is absolutely night and day difference. Uh, it's a it's a couple of collective bargaining agreements uh, down the road, so things have certainly changed um, just from the minimum standards of what the players um, expect, accommodations, travel wise, everything like that. Um, salary cap wise, what you can do with the designated players, what you can do with TAM signings, all of these things. So, with Gary Smith, he has this idea right with the with a tenure in Colorado and also the restrictions they placed on him ownership-wise. And then you fast forward 10 years later, he's here in Nashville with an owner that wants to accommodate and is so willing to help and will put behind the resources to go and secure big-name players, Hani Mukhtar, Randall Leal, Aki Loba, these players. Um, Gary Smith didn't have that at his disposal, yet was still able to make it and win MLS Cup. Mm -hmm. um, his adaptability to be able to transfer over um, to the modern era of where Major League Soccer is now, this iteration is so further down the line. And that's maybe more difficult because you have to adapt and change with everybody else, right? And so what worked back then necessarily wouldn't work nowadays. And so I think he's done a really good job of 
changing with the times and understanding how to keep up, uh, keep pace while also doing it in their unique way where they find undervalued players. I mean, if you look at Anibal Godoy and Dax McCarty, the center midfield pairing that you put in pen pretty much each week, you would say that those players cost roughly around 850,000. I yeah, think yeah, it is 750, and, I think total 650 for any ball and a hundred for Dax. Yeah. Something even like better. That. There you go. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. That's your starting midfield there. Dave mm-hmm. Romney's played every minute of every game, I believe it was $400,000 in allocation money. Right. So then there's your left back for every minute of every game. Walker Zimmerman for a million dollars. If you go anywhere to any league in the world and you say right around that $1.1 million for the best defender in the league, I mean, you're going to have to put some more zeros on the end of it if you want to go elsewhere mm-hmm. around the world to justify that kind of signing. Alistair Johnston was a draft mm-hmm. pick. Joe Willis was essentially an expansion pick and then I think traded for Zarek Valentin. Uh, loves Zarek. He's a great guy, but I think the return on investment for that was a wonderful flip, right? I mean, and just an expansion draft pick. Um, you start to see a lot of these hits that the team has gotten and you start to say that's why they have the successes because they haven't swung for the fences and hoped for the best. They've gone, let's be calculated and methodical with how we want to do it. Um, and Gary Smith's part of that. Mike Jacobs, Holly McKay, Chance Myers, the whole staff, um, Oliver Miller-Farrell, they do a great job in the analytics side, do a great job targeting certain players and figuring out Let's find players that are maybe undervalued, underappreciated, and know this league and can adapt to it and come together. They have the right personality. Mike Jacobs is the most thorough person when it comes to scouting somebody. If you send a tweet in 2011, chances are he's read it before he <laughs> signed you, right? You know what I mean? If you, uh, if you had dinner with somebody four years ago and um, you weren't polite to the server, you probably – um, he probably knows about it, right? You know what I mean? And so he wants to make sure that you're going to be the right fit, the right person for the culture and uh, of the club. And if you are, then you can certainly be uh, a part of this. And if you're not, then, well, there's other players that are going to maybe necessarily not be the same analytically as you on the field, but if they're a better fit for the team, then that's better for the holistic approach that they'll take to signing a player. Jamie, thank you so much for your time today. You've been at the top of our list of guys to have on this show, and we're glad we found the right moment to have you in to talk a little bit of soccer and a lot of other fun stuff. Thanks so much for your time, and best of luck on the microphone a couple times this week. Enjoy the podcast so much. Thank you guys for finally having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jamie. Tim, Jamie has not only been a great voice in this market, but also become a confidant for each of us as we've, as I've mm-hmm. prepped for broadcast. So you've spoken with him a, a good bit as well. Uh, such a firm grasp, of course, on tactics, but also the ability to clearly communicate those. Uh, he's got a strong future in this business if he wants it. Yeah. And he talked a lot about kind of his philosophy and how he sees kind of, he wants to accept different parts of what people can bring to um, understanding the game and kind of understanding the personalities in the game. And, and none of what he says there is, is in any way inaccurate. He is, absolutely means all of that in a very genuine way that he wants to take in as many different types of analysis, as many different types of understanding the game as he can and, and bring them all together and synthesize them. And uh, at this point, you'd be hard-pressed to find a whole lot of people in Major League Soccer who do a better job of that than Jamie. I know it from being in the business. You know it from being in the business and, and watching a whole lot of sports, not just soccer. There are two types of former players in, in the booth. There's the type who shows up and skates on their name and expects that they're going to be able to just see the game well in the booth mm-hmm. and leave it at that. 
And there's the type that prepares for broadcast the same way that, that they prepared for matches. And Jamie is the latter. He absolutely digs into this stuff, man. And and in our conversations with Gary Smith every week, he's he's kind of the, the chief moderator of those calls. We each get questions in, but he really, really moves the, the discussion in a strong tackle, tactical direction and um, has learned how to get great stuff out of Gary. Uh, it's, it's really fun. And it helps us all have a, a great idea of how to how to approach each match, even if not everything Gary says is, is necessarily on the record. Uh, Jamie's great. We appreciate his time. And uh, if he's listening to this, Jamie, we know that, that you taught Dax everything he knows uh, with those wrestling and boxing moves <laughs> that he displayed against Maxi Morales. Moving on to the mailbag now. Some people are salty, and some people are salty about why people are salty uh, with regard to this Chicago match. Uh, Travis writes in and says, seven points on the four-game road stretch is perfectly fine, actually really good at MLS. Why do you think people approach certain draws with this sky-is-falling attitude when we're sitting in second in the East and six points clear of third? And Tracy Edwards brings the counterpoint and maybe answers that question a bit. He says, I think Nashville's good enough to get to MLS Cup. We sit behind three top teams in the West in in points per game. Shouldn't we be less complacent about dropping points to minnows? It seems painfully wasteful with the schedule turning tougher, with the highest number of points getting to host MLS Cup, of course. Point accumulation is vital if you believe you have a chance to go all the way. And he says, I'm not feeling the imperative vibes from NSC or its supporters. Yeah, I I would say I very much do feel the the, the imperative vibes from the supporters, that's for sure. But I think I think to answer Travis's uh, version of asking this question, I guess there is a certain drama and kind of playing up the struggle. It's it kind of helps, you know, the hero's narrative of saying, okay, there's everything's going well until this and until that. And I I do think that there's there's an element of of wanting to add a little bit of drama to, to the whole thing, but I also think there's a level of of sound analysis that's a little bit more nuanced and more difficult to articulate. So the low hanging fruit gets, uh, I guess, picked or whatever the the tortured <laughs> metaphor here would be. But realistically, as I've said multiple times already, even great teams don't get every result that they should, and Nashville is no exception. It doesn't mean it's fun when it happens, but it does mean that it's not irregular. So I think it's just. It's just the difference between how outstanding this squad can be. That's the particular hair that we're splitting in this case. And um, when you're at a point when you're saying exactly how outstanding is this squad, that's you're at a certain level already that fans <laughs> should probably be a little bit happy about. Right. And I, I get the feeling. I think that this squad is not going to deeply care um, whether it finishes second or fourth if it's hosting that home playoff match. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's an order of, of priorities and goals here, and they recognize that if they shoot for a priority – that's two or three steps beyond the immediate, they could risk the immediate. And so I'll, I'll bring up four points. Number one is that, that matches don't exist in a vacuum. Fitness is a scarce resource. We know this uh, in soccer, especially. And it's the tightest stretch of matches all season, five and 16 days. Let's not forget, Hani took a nasty stomp late against Miami, would have been asked to play on a sketchy field. So I, I don't think, Tracy, um, that you or that many folks probably have a huge quibble with with lineup selection understanding that reality um, but i think that's number one is that with fitness being a scarce resource then number two nine points and nine over these three matches chicago orlando and new york in eight days with two of those games on the road would be an epic performance i don't think anybody um even maybe this you know the the sky is falling crowd would expect three wins in those three and so if you have to prioritize matches in their order of importance, you know, if you rank Chicago, Orlando, New York City, you're going to put Chicago last on that list every time. Any way you slice it like a deep dish pizza, Chicago is last. So number one, matches don't exist in a vacuum. Number two, 
you have to prioritize. Number three, there are no easy road matches in MLS. You can call Chicago a minnow if you want, and when they came to Nissan Stadium, boy, they looked like the smallest fish I've ever seen. Um, they looked like a, one of those microbacteria that, that is at the bottom of the ocean uh, with the red card, with Nashville winning 5-1. Um, but that Chicago team scores more than twice as often at home as on the road. Uh, I guess the bacteria grows when it's in its natural habitat. <laughs> In, in its optimal conditions for propagation, yes. Yeah, the metaphors are just terrible tonight. Uh, but looking beyond that, it's, it's a better team at, at home. Tim's mentioned the attacking punch that they have. Um, you know, if if Nashville earns four points against Orlando and NYC, dropping two points against Chicago is worth it, uh, I think, because you rest those guys, you get them ready for six-point matches that are inarguably more important to this team's playoff future. But even if it doesn't earn those four points, soccer's not basketball. When you play two matches a week, you have to rotate. And if you want to take issue with anything, I don't think it's a lack of urgency. I think it's just the lack of quality depth being able to get the job done in the absence of Hani Mukhtar and CJ Sapong. You can take issue with Yonder Cadiz not providing that depth or consistency, having not scored uh, since the second match of the season. And that's fair to me. Um, so number one, matches don't exist in a vacuum. Number two, you have to prioritize matches. Number three, there are no easy road matches. Uh, and number four, I think finally and most importantly, Nashville has to prioritize its goals, and sometimes those goals are going to conflict. Um, seeking maximum points every time out and going for that MLS Cup hosting, going for CCL, going for these things that everybody at the organization would love to achieve, they could come at the expense of the stability that you need to keep from conceding and, of course, at the expense of player health. So with that said, here is what I believe Nashville's hierarchy of goals to be. Number one priority, get to the playoffs. That's pretty much done. The 45-point mark is kind of considered the line. Uh, but even then, unless you believe Nashville's going to drop all three points in every single remaining match, they're in. They're in the playoffs. Celebrate. Pop your champagne. Great. Uh, number two priority is, I think, to host a playoff match. Get to that top four. That's next on the list. Nashville probably needs three wins or so in the final eight to make that happen or just a heck of a lot of draws. Uh, that's number two is to host that, that playoff match. Number three is not, in my opinion, MLS Cup, and it's not CCL. It's to be healthy and fresh for the postseason. Um, yeah. We've seen way too many teams win Supporter Shield and flame out. I mean, look at the last several who have done so, including Philadelphia last year. Uh, you can peak at the wrong time. And from a fitness standpoint, from a form standpoint, Nashville wants to be healthy and fresh for the postseason. And if all those things are in order, then you get as many points as possible once you're above the line to secure CCL. But I really don't think this club cares as much about those mm -hmm. things. Um, as much as they would love to host as many playoff matches as they can, look how good they've been at Nissan Stadium. They understand the immediate can um, be more important than the ideal. And where those two are opposed, they're going to go for the immediate goal every time. Yeah, and, and like we talked about last week, I think once this team is, is officially locked into the playoffs, they're effectively locked in now. Once they're officially locked in, it'll be interesting to see exactly how Gary approaches the rest of the season, whether it's kind of play fast and loose. Um, certainly a lot more rotation, but but it's basically free money at that point and see what you can get kind of by, by playing uh, playing it a little bit more uh, speculatively and, and seeing if maybe some of those gambles pay off and maybe uh, it doesn't matter if they don't. Yeah, I think we could totally see that. And I think, you know, where, where Tracy sees maybe a lack of imperative, I would say it's more of a strategically guided imperative versus an immediate uh, imperative, instant gratification imperative. Scott McAnally is making the assumption that, that we are pretty much making, which is that Nashville has essentially reached the playoff line. He says since Nashville's reached that theoretical playoff line, what other playoff team would Nashville have the most trouble with? Um, he says road game is the toughest opponent fair, uh, but he'd like to see Nashville's chances against the Revs if Nashville got them because Nashville's past performance against the Revs has been strong. So 
who should worry us, he says. If I'm picking one team, it's still New England um, <laughs> to be lame and totally cop out, and then I'll get better in a second. Um, the best coach in MLS history is going to have his tricks up his sleeve. He's not going to allow himself to be bamboozled like he was in the first meeting against Nashville. Um, uh, you know, scoreless draw the second time around uh, would probably you know be something that would serve Nashville very well on the road in New England. But uh, Bruce Arena is going to probably have other ideas there uh, to try to stymie Nashville's defense. Uh, remember, New England looked much better the second time it played Nashville both of those seasons. Um, 11 players on that New England team have scored multiple goals, and it's the only playoff match that would most assuredly be on the road. But, Scott, I'll go to the spirit of your question. Other than New England, I'd say Philly. Um, this is a veteran group. They've been in the playoff battles before. They've not necessarily won those battles, but they've been there, and they've continued to progress as a franchise every year. Um, it's a squad that's built on pressure and effort and not finesse. Those are the types of teams that will give Nashville a little more challenge than one that tries to play pretty that Nashville can just tear apart uh, defensively. They have that physical backbone as well, um, a defense that's second only to Nashville's when it comes to goals allowed. I think they would set up to make things tight and scrappy, and it would kind of turn into an eye-poking contest in midfield that I think would be bruising, close, and and dangerous for Nashville SC. Yeah, I, re- I really like that Philly shout. This is a team that I think a lot of people would agree have not has not played up to its potential so far this year. And for that reason, you could kind of say, okay, once they click, maybe there's a, a lot going on here. But my choice is New York City FC. I think this is a team that really scares me because there's the same sort of element of underachieving in the table that kind of softens the blow. But uh, you see the respect that Gary Smith treats Chicago with. I already mentioned it. Imagine taking that team and making them even better on a skill perspective, even better on an expected goals perspective, and say, okay, if this team turns it on on a given day, they're able to just completely get it done. And I think um, you can't trust the Pigeons to get it done every single week, but when they do have the opportunity to get it done, um, it's something that you know they can have that excellent game every once in a while. I think that's that's a great point with with a bunch of seasoned players and some virtuosos in the attack and you know you have a guy like Tati Castellanos that you can rely upon at striker too who consistently produces I mean those are the teams it's kind of like having the you know the killer you know backcourt and basketball in this double tournament like you have those great guards and you can go a long way uh, New York City has Tati Castellanos as that striker equivalent that that is, is been, has been really consistent for, for most of this year striker of the face of Dax McCarty no we're we're really we're really belaboring that point on this podcast. I mean, how often does Nashville see get into a scrap? Exactly once yeah, ever. Fair so enough. We have to get our money's worth out of that. And you know, the game is this week, so it's kind of relevant. Three of you reached out about what the heck's going on um, at the top of Nashville's attack beneath CJ Zapong, who was the undisputed uh, number one center forward. Pancito twenty three says, "Will we see Aki Lobo play more than forty five minutes in a game this season? He's just reached that total once in his start against New England." Ryan Fincheskin. Francescan says, what does the striker depth chart look like now? Will Loba ever play without a big striker next to him? He's dreaming of a Hani Loba layoff front three with respect to CJ, of course. And Chris Hole, why start Cadiz and not Loba in Chicago? Does Gary see value in Cadiz this season if it, even if his loan isn't made permanent? Is Loba really not 90 minutes match, 90 minutes match fit? Yeah, I mean, I understand and I, and I agree with some of the fan frustration and not seeing a big dollar signing on the field more consistently. You spend big dollars on a guy because you expect to see him on the field consistently. But I think Gary Smith's response to the question when I've posted on, on many different occasions at this point is it's honesty. It's not coach speaking. And quick shout out to Robbie Aces, who always asks us a version of this question and asked yep. me a version of this question in person this week. Um, but this is a guy who really just isn't quite game ready. And when there are limited striker minutes, the guys down the depth chart have a certain number of minutes to go around. In the case of a guy like Loba, 
if you can't trust him to be 70 minute fit at a certain point, you're probably just better off using him as that late game super sub as we've seen pretty consistently over the past few weeks. I mean, in, in that regard, as, as far as what the striker depth chart looks like right now, it's obviously number one, CJ Sapong. I think it's number two, Hani Mukhtar as striker. And keep in mind that playing him as a striker takes your best winger or attacking midfielder off the pitch. So that mm-hmm. tells you just how important he can be as a striker too. Um, and then number three, it's Daniel Rios. And, and beyond that, it's, it's pretty much even. I think we've seen Abu Danladi fade a little bit from uh, what looked like maybe a bit more even with the other guys at this point. But whether it's John Dercades or whether it's Ake Lobo or, or even some of these guys that that could uh, be thrown in there in a pinch. Could it be Walker Zimmerman as a header threat? Something like that. You know, you're seeing a bunch of guys at that point who are below the guys who are who are the clear first choice starting caliber strikers. So you've answered why could he started ahead of Loba there, kind of in the course of that of that discussion. Um, were you surprised to see could he could he start ahead of Rios, given his spot on that depth chart? Just a rotation situation there because Daniels had more minutes lately. Yeah, I was surprised. Um, Gary Smith was asked about it post game. I honestly don't remember if it was in response to one of my questions or or one of the other questions that somebody asked. But he said, "Listen, Daniel Rios should should potentially be upset that he didn't get the the minutes that he thought he should get because this is a guy who's come out and he's performed when he's been on the pitch, but." we have enough strikers that we have to have some rotation. And even a guy like Daniel, who's been very successful is going to have to continue to earn those minutes and is is going to sit sometimes when he feels like he should play. I thought that was pretty interesting because Hmm. um, I think regular listeners know, I think Daniel Rios is an outstanding talent. And if he's healthy enough and then given the opportunities, he will uh, perform and he will kind of meet the the numbers that you expect him to hit. But I, I guess the the reasoning that Gary Smith gave made sense. I personally probably would play Rios whenever I can, but yeah. but I understand it for sure. Yeah, I think there's going back to Ake, just there's extreme caution to employ him at the right moment. And we've seen this with we saw it with Yonder Cadiz last year. And I'm not comparing Cadiz and Loba's, you know, style necessarily, skill level necessarily future with this club. Certainly not that. Um but that same principle applies that that mm-hmm. you think know, Smith first off doesn't want to disrupt the rhythm of what he has going. Second wants to to put him in when he's in a position to succeed. Best case scenario for Loba, he comes in for, you know, 25, 30 minutes like he did against Chicago. He gets a goal, he starts to get some confidence. And we've seen time and time again when a guy scores, Gary's gonna start him the next match, or at least play him yeah. more prominently. Look at Luke Hawkinson with his brace against mm-hmm. uh against Toronto, he was not fully even really fit for that next game. And Gary played him anyway, because he Mm -hmm. was like, look, you scored two goals. You've earned it. Um, I think it's going to, it's a bit of a chicken and egg, but, but I think if hockey can start producing a little more in the minutes he's getting, we're going to start seeing him climb up that depth chart. Yeah. I mean, one of those ideal situations, if only there could be a situation where shortly after he comes onto the pitch, somebody earns a penalty kick and, and Ake has the opportunity <laughs> to take the, yeah. take that kick. But uh, obviously uh, a little joke they're referencing Alex, Alex Mule insisting yep. on taking his own penalty kick and converting um, just a few weeks ago. But it is something that you think about and say, what if Loba had had that opportunity, had hit the penalty kick? Could he be feeling himself a little bit more now and maybe performing <laughs> a little bit more when he's on the pitch? Who knows? We'll see. Uh, if, if, misses if it the ever kick, does, does he ever now. play again? Um. <laughs> Hey, come on, Wes. This is the optimistic podcast, buddy. That is true. I'm sorry. I'll see myself out. Uh, John Mueller uh, asks, I think, a a good question that kind of can get philosophical just a little bit, um, although I can't see why we wouldn't take it that direction. Um, That's some some good place level uh, philosophy (laughs) discussion. Great show, by the way. That's going to be my content recommendation now. I hadn't thought of one yet. It's it's tremendous. (laughs) Uh, Everything is fine, uh, but... 
Uh, John Mueller says, can a player's theoretical MVP candidacy be impacted by games in which he doesn't play? In my home opinion, based on yesterday's game versus New England's games without heel, doesn't Hani seem more valuable? Uh, first off, I'm going to answer the can, and I'm going to change the tone of the question a little bit to suit a better discussion. First, you're going to answer the can, and then you're going to answer the can't. There it is. That would have been a much better place to work that in. I kind of pigeonholed. I forced that in. You're molding this conversation like Plato. Um, really is Hey-o, incredible. Oh, look at us go. <laughs> oh, all right. If you use the Socratic method in this conversation, though, we can really come to some good conclusions. <laughs> um, so first off, let's let's talk real, uh, real talk here, John. And you know this, but just for our audience. Uh, most MLS voters are not nuanced enough or awake enough to watch all 27 teams when their best players are on the pitch, much less pay attention to the impact when they're off the pitch. The award will typically go to the best player on the best team unless somebody shows up and scores 30 goals on a third-place team. Uh, this year, that best player is Carlos Heel. That best team is New England. He's going to win MVP. Let's prepare for that. And and he would get my vote, quite honestly, with, with mm-hmm. what he has done. Uh, Hani would be a, a surefire finalist for me, though. So the question of, of can in absence affect the perception of how valuable that player is to a team. It won't, but should it, uh, I think is a better question here. Should the lack of availability and a team's relative struggles when the player is out have an impact on that voting? Um, I think let's look at a surface examination of the absence of, of Hani and heel and what that means for their respective teams. Cause I think that's the ultimate place you're going with this, right? Um, number one, Nashville in matches when Hani does not start. Unfortunately, it doesn't really build Hani's case. They are unbeaten. Two wins, no draws. Sorry, two wins, no losses, three draws. But here's where the case gets a little better. They just scored three goals in those five matches. Goals per match when he starts, just over two goals per contest. So Nashville does okay uh, without Hani, but it's a different kind of game. And certainly that's a noisy stat, right? There's a lot of other variables that are that are going into that. Um, how about New England without Carlos Heel? Guess what? They're 7-1-1. One, and one. They're pretty strong without him too. Um, their goals per match with him, 1.9. Without him, 1.8. Uh, New England has a slightly more robust supporting cast. I mean, you see all those, those guys totally rotate and play literally a B team plus Matt Turner against Chicago and still score three goals and, and get the win before Nashville played Chicago. Um, you could use this to make the case that Hani's more valuable to his team based on the goal stat, but I don't think it's enough. I don't think it's conclusive evidence. That data, as I mentioned, is inherently noisy. And again, back to my original point, it's just not going to matter. Yeah, I understand the concept as well. And I agree with it in principle. Uh, the Prince, Hani Mukhtar, that's it. that used to be his uh, Twitter handle or something. Nic- Nicolo, Nicolo Machiavelli, are we still on the philosophy thing? I don't know. Uh, anyway, <laughs> that's but the a, little a, prince. A player, Hani's the big prince this year. Yeah. A player's absence can underscore his importance, but, but value, quote unquote, in terms of most valuable, also includes availability. There is value in that. Like Michael Jordan was not the MVP of the 94 and 95 Bulls because he wasn't there. And we saw that they won every single championship in the surrounding six years when he was there. <laughs> But, I mean, those moments off the pitch do more than just point out how much a guy has missed. They, they can hurt his team because he isn't around. And you just kind of described where basically neither player's lack of availability has hurt his team. But he also hasn't missed enough of the season. And, uh, and the reps have been good enough, regardless of whether or not he's been there, that his statistical uh, performance can be overwhelmed by some sort of not being on the pitch. So it's, it's all academic in a way. He'll, as you mentioned, is he is the MLS MVP this year. I think it's already sewn up unless somebody scores 20 goals in, in the final eight or nine games here. But the limited time Honey has missed 
could hit that sweet spot of showing how crucial he is without missing so much time that the value of his absence hurts the team. But I think in in the instance of a season where you have a guy like Heal, it doesn't matter anyway. And shout out to um, I don't like to get involved in too many Twitter beefs. I I pick one every couple of weeks and jump in. But uh, shout out to uh, the fans responding to the one New England guy who said, "Ah, without Hani Mukhtar." Nashville wouldn't even be in the playoffs. And they were like, then he should be an MVP candidate. <laughs> you can't have it both ways. Um, speaking of players who were not on the pitch, uh, really ever, uh, Loli Pinheiro, John Hobenreich asks, whither he of the shortest shorts, Loli Pinheiro, uh, where is he? Well, he's getting sweet back tattoos. Yeah, I, so that. I will actually take umbrage. I think there's got to be somebody out there with shorter shorts, but... Uh, to, to, to answer the question, he was always a developmental player when he signed. He was not ready to play immediately, which in some ways is the design of the young money mechanism that Nashville used to sign him. Expectations for him got a little bit out of hand because the mechanism is relatively new and maybe there's not quite the understanding yet of, of what exactly that sort of mechanism is going to mean. But in the long run, it's, it's what's right to let a guy develop a little bit more and and kind of get his feet wet, not just in the league, but in this country. He's never been outside Uruguay for any for any uh, serious amount of time before signing with Nashville. So it's something that if, if we're still asking this question at this point next year, it might be a little bit more important of a question to find an answer to. But for now, it's not something I would worry about. Yeah, the impression I get is that he has a lot of, of development to do uh, to, mm-hmm. to be a more complete player, but that the raw talent is enough that once he's able to develop a stronger tactical understanding of the game, uh, really, you know, on both sides of the pitch, then, you know, he could still be a guy who, who contributes in a Nashville kit. I think skepticism is fair. I think curiosity is, is completely understandable, uh, but the, the story's not fully written there uh, just yet. Well, let's take things outside in. Another managerial change in Cincinnati. Yop Stam is done. That era is over. He still had more Coach of the Week honors than Gary Smith in his tenure, but uh, anyway, <laughs> um, Yop Stam out. I, again, I think you know they continue to to try to dig themselves out of the hole they built for themselves at their inception, and it's it comes with another personnel change here. Yeah, it's something that um, you know you look at what FC Cincinnati has done, and you look at what Nashville has done, and and if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably very happy that Nashville has done what it what it has done instead of doing what FC Cincinnati has chosen to do. Um, you know. These these uh, the main thing that it underscores is is the coach of the year uh, or coach of the week. Sorry, honors that he's gotten. I, I will not ever understand the coach and team of the week votes. <laughs> unlike unlike player of the week, which I right. understand very intimately. I, I help MLS run that particular award, and I understand very much how it happens. Even if I don't always agree with the result necessarily, but you get weird choices when it's just the MLS editorial staff, and it's it's been kind of a weird anti Smith bent. Um, you know, Nashville beats New England. Obviously, that was relatively early in the year, so people didn't necessarily know how good the reps were, but just no no recognition for Gary there. Um, given the results, kind of in comparison to the expectations for Nashville's roster, it has just been a weird situation. It's one that, uh, you know, I think Gary could go undefeated and win MLS Cup and still not necessarily get the sort of attention that we've discussed that that we think he deserves. So it is a fun opportunity to revisit the comparisons between Nashville and the three other expansion teams that began their tenures most uh, closely to the boys in gold. Um, So let's compare them. Um, Nashville, Miami, Austin, Cincinnati, two metrics, points per game 
and percentage of matches in which they earned a result. Nashville, let's start there and we'll move to the bottom. And I think you're going to know who's at the bottom of that, that list. Uh, Nashville, 1.59 points per game in its two years since creation. That includes um, the playoffs, by the way. Um, results in 78% of its matches. Nashville actually has the most wins plus draws of any team in Major League Soccer dating back to the start of last season, even more at this point than Seattle Sounders, which I think might so surprise fewest, many. That's fewest losses, right? The same thing. Once again, you're just taking the short the short route. <laughs> fewest losses. Yeah. See, this is what happens when I have a long work day and I throw together a rundown and I, I get all wrapped up in, in verbosity. Yep, fewest losses. Nashville has the fewest losses slash most results, whatever you want to call it. It'll be better than what I just called it. Uh, anyway, let's move on to the other teams. The second best team of the four actually is Miami. And, you know, you could see that, right? They've started to come around mm-hmm. just a little bit before showing that they are still fundamentally a bit broken right now. Uh, 1.14 points per game compared to Nashville's 1.59. And results in 49%. So they've lost 51% of their matches. There you go, Tim. Uh, Austin, 0.84 points per game. Just results in 38% of their contests. Cincy, a little better, actually, in percentage of results. Earned 39%. So they've lost just a slightly lower percentage of those matches. But 0.73 points per game. That is well less than half of Nashville's rate. In fact, Nashville has now 17 more points than Cincinnati in their respective histories in one less season of existence. Yeah, I think we discussed a few weeks ago when, when Nashville passed FC Cincinnati, despite having played, I think it was 34 fewer games or something like that. And, uh, you know, given what we've seen from FC Cincinnati, I don't think they're going to be closing that gap back where, where uh, it was when they had played more games than Nashville anytime soon. Fix Cincinnati for me in 30 seconds. What needs to happen there? Uh, 30 seconds, huh? Uh, and not just a 30 second long sigh. That doesn't count. <laughs> yeah. yeah that, that's probably the easiest way to do it. Uh, I, I think what you do is you, you find an MLS proven general manager, a guy like Garth Lagerway, for example, frankly, a guy like Mike Jacobs, who knows the talent that's already in this league, you build from within the league and find ways to augment it with guys outside the league, instead of doing what Cincinnati has done and, and build from USL talent essentially, and, and try to, pick and choose pieces that don't necessarily fit with what you're doing in terms of a holistic approach. 27 seconds. You had three left. Well done. And I, I think you just got, I, I had three more seconds. I could decide. Oh no. That's well, <laughs> uh, you just got an email. Actually, you're going to be interviewed for their uh, managerial job. It sounds like, so <laughs> um, there you go. Um, want to close with, uh, with a fun question from John Mueller that fit a little better into the outside in category. Um, he said, given New England's nigh unreachable status, every spot except first seems up for grabs in the East. Yes, we can see that. Um, how do y'all see it playing out? Who rises? Who fades? He says, I have my thoughts, but I'll wait till Tuesday morning and the pot. So he'll be one of our classic Tuesday morning listeners. And John, interested in telling you telling us how wrong we are. Um, but again, the difference between third and ninth right now, just five points. So again, all these are going to end up being wrong. They could be completely switched. And I don't think either of us are going to be terribly shocked. Um, I'll go and I'll go quickly. Um, New England first, Nashville second. I do think the boys in gold can and will hold on to that second spot. They've mm-hmm. um, they've got an advantage right now. I think they can hold um, because I think they're going to get some good results this week against uh, the closest two of the closest competitors for that spot. I think Philadelphia finishes third. Uh, they're currently fourth, but with a game in hand. Um, they just beat Orlando and Atlanta. They're in recent form. CCL is done now for them, so they don't have another competition to worry about. Uh, they play Cincinnati twice, which doesn't hurt. Five teams below the playoff line left on their schedule in their remaining nine matches. Now, the only challenge is their home and road breakdowns the same as Nashville's. Six away from home, 
uh, and three at home. So what Nashville was facing before Chicago, there that six three split. So that could get in their way. They've not been great away from home, but I think they're showing sufficient quality that, that they may just sneak up and grab that three spot um, that they actually actually already kind of have if you go by points per game. Um, Orlando fourth, they're combustible, the most volatile team on the list. They could finish anywhere from fourth to about seventh or eighth, and I wouldn't be terribly surprised. I don't think they fall um, out of the playoffs despite their recent struggles. I think they'll figure it out and, and start turning this thing around. They're too talented not to. They're very well coached. Um, Atlanta fifth, they have seven wins and nine. They have six remaining matches against teams outside the playoff pitcher. They've shown they're still a little bit brittle at times, but um, they've really come on strong. I think they're going to they're gonna find their way comfortably across the playoff line. NYC, I've got dropping a little bit despite their quality. Uh, they've lost five of last six. I think they might be declining right now, but I will trust, uh, Tim, your assessment as well, that, that this is a team that, while inconsistent, can be – they could they could win a less cup this year. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are mm-hmm. that talented, and, and when they put it together, they're great. I think DC snags the last spot. Then it's Montreal, Columbus, Red Bulls in tenth. Miami completely fades into eleventh. I think they're way too fragile uh, to do what they need to do to make the playoffs. So, New England, Nashville, Philly, Orlando, and Atlanta. My top five, followed by NYC. What about you, Tim? Yeah, I think my main differences here are I. For the reasons that you just mentioned, I have NYC finishing third, despite the fact that I think that there's a pretty good chance that Nashville knocks them off this week, or at least earns a result in Harrison, New Jersey, as it, as the case may be for this particular week. But I do think despite that, this because of their quality, this is a team that's going to finish really high. I'm a, after New York City, I have Orlando and then Philly. I don't. I think that's kind of splitting hairs in terms of how how we disagree on those. My main difference is I then have DC and then Atlanta. I do think that while uh, the five stripes are playing quite a bit better recently, there's a certain element of of maybe luck isn't quite the right word, but it's it's kind of um, getting the most out of each situation that I, I don't think that we have seen them do with any sort of consistent basis enough to say that they will continue doing it through the end of the year. Then I have Montreal, Red Bulls, Miami, Columbus, and then I. I want to go all the way to the bottom because I have, right. I have Toronto ahead of Cincinnati, despite the fact that Toronto is well, beha- well behind Cincinnati right now. I think once the Reds get a chance to play a few more games at BMO Field, they will kind of continue to do what we saw in Nashville um, have happened against them twice in, in giving up results to Toronto FC. Then I see Cincinnati, obviously, when you make a coaching change at this stage in the year, it is not because you are expecting to win MLS Cup. I do not believe they will do that. Breaking news, no MLS Cup for FC Cincinnati. That would be three straight wooden spoons for them, and that would be the first time this has ever happened in a league that is built on parity, and yet the parity bus just skipped right by Cincy and drove straight to Columbus (laughs) on I-71, I think. Final whistle, content recommendations. Uh, Tim, you actually inspired mine just a few minutes ago. The Good Place. Uh, The the NBC show. It's a good show. Am I right, folks? uh, It is. Nice. Um, it's great. There are twists. It is heartfelt. It is hilarious. It is. It is deep. like super educational and like a Clearly. philosophy two hundred one level class too. <laughs> it is. It is. And their goal, actually, I listened to, to the podcast where they recap every episode too, and cause I'm, I'm super into it. It's been a couple of years now, but but they aim to teach a philosophical lesson mm-hmm. with every show, so that it's not just uh, we're going to work in some references to Socrates every now and then. It's Every single episode, we're going to get into you know Nietzsche, Plato, Socrates, all these guys, but in a very accessible way uh, that's real life and yet not necessarily real life because it's, yeah, it's, it's real afterlife. afterlife. Who knows? Real yeah. afterlife. There it is. <laughs> Thank you. You just slammed home the goal that I that I set up there. 
Yeah, my, my content recommendation is is another Michael Schur show, Brooklyn Nine Nine. No, I'm just joking. Uh, <laughs> mine is mine, mine is actually uh, inspired by uh, an interaction in the Soldier Field press box this weekend. Um, check out the Chicago Sun Times. Brian Sandalo does an awesome job covering the fire. Um, really good dude. A shout out to his his uh, heavy use of of Gary Smith quotes that uh, <laughs> his his acquisition of uh, his methods of acquiring this weekend will remain un, unmentioned here, but uh, his. Uh, <laughs> His coverage is second to none in the market, and it's uh, we always appreciate seeing mainstream newspapers cover MLS teams because not all of them do that in their markets, and um, Brian does it about as well as basically anybody in the country. For each of the two matches for which I've, I've been on the mic, I, I looked pretty heavily into his writing, <laughs> and, and it was very educational. It was really good stuff. Uh, bold predictions for Orlando and NYC coming up this week. Oh, I, I left it blank on the rundown because I'm like so torn about what might happen. Does Same. Nashville SC kind of kind of fade a little bit because they they have their confidence shaken by not getting a res- the result that they wanted in Chicago? They got a result, but not the one that they wanted. Or do they come back and say, "Okay, we have CJ Sapong back. We have Hani Mukhtar back. We're going to go out and get everything." I do think a win against Orlando is a possibility, and a draw against NYC. Um, it probably seems like a best case scenario. So I think anywhere between two and four points would not surprise me. But but this is this is po- the world of podcasting. So I have to draw my line in the sand. I, I will say they win one and lose one and end up with three points at the end of this week. And generally, I mean that's that's okay. They can win a war of points attrition against these teams if they're if they're <laughs> splitting the rest of the way. They're probably going to end up with that home playoff spot. Um, I will say. Again, not going to predict results. I'll be on the mic for both of these. I'll say three combined NSC goals. I don't think this is a situation where Nashville is going to show up against Orlando and put up three in the first half. We didn't see that when Orlando came to town uh, a month ago. don't think we're going to see it uh, on Wednesday. And then looking ahead at New York, I also don't think that Nashville gets shut out in that match. I think they will have chances. I think that's going to be a little more of a free-flowing game against a New York team that's going to be desperate to get forward and score goals and earn three points and, and try to close the gap. I don't know what that means for the final score line, except that I, I just don't think Nashville gets shut out really in either of these matches. I think there are goals. I don't think it's going to be a five, one route. <laughs> you know, yeah. I think the quality of these teams is going to make each of these matches really tight. And I think when we circle back next week, we are going to talk about two games in which every moment, every chance mattered. And that's all you can ask for. If you're Nashville SC at this point in your second season. And I think if you look at, you know, expecting multiple goals uh, in, in at least one of the games and kind of an open Nashville SC philosophy, it'll be interesting to see if, if maybe we get a couple of high scoring matches, regardless of what the final outcomes are. Do we see a, bu- a bunch of goals put on the board with Nashville feeling a little bit more comfortable about being in the playoffs and both of these teams feeling like they need results to secure that spot, too? Well, we have gone into extra time now, so we'll go ahead and and, uh, and blow that final whistle. Uh, thanks to Moon Taxi for the music, ESPN 94.9 for the highlights. And be sure to hop on Twitter and follow each of us. I'm at West Bowling TN. He is at Club Country USA. Uh, and, and send in your mailbag questions. Rate, review, subscribe to the show as well on Apple Podcasts and your favorite platforms. Thanks to the 440 Sports Network for giving us microphones and not turning them off. And thank you. We'll talk to you next week.